Hello and welcome to BJA Education Podcast. My name's Riaz, and today I'm here to record a podcast with Professor Jennifer Hunter on her August 2020 paper named Neuromuscular Blockade. Uh, Professor Jennifer Hunter is well known to the BJA uh, education and the main BJA body. Uh, I'm going to let Professor Hunter introduce herself. Um, so, Professor Hunter, over to you. Thank you very much indeed, Riaz. It's very nice to be here. Well, uh, I have had a very long interest in pharmacology of neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents. And of course, most of the recent research has been about reversal agents. And so, this is why we're doing this podcast to accompany my recent re- review, which I hope will be in the August issue of the British Journal of Anesthesia Education. You've done previous work with the BJA, haven't you? Well, I was editor-in-chief of the British Journal of Anesthesia from 1997 to 2005, and chairman of the BJA board from 2006 to 2012. I was on the BJA board for at least 22 years, and it was a great honour and privilege to be there. And your main research interest is around uh, neuromuscular blockade agents or general general anaesthetic, other anaesthetic agents? Well, I can only really boast expertise on neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents. I've done a lot of other clinical research, but that's been my area of interest. I've been involved a lot with anaesthetizing chronic renal failure patients, and I was a consultant in intensive care for 20 years before I became editor of the journal. So... I am interested still in the critically ill, obviously. Would you like to tell our listeners what motivated you to write this article? Well, there are several things, really. I, I, I've been giving a lecture quite regularly in recent months about developments in reversal of neuromuscular block. And there's been a lot going on in this area of research and an awful lot of clinical uh, importance. And I've been very aware that I think many very competent anaesthetists are not altogether fully aware of some of these developments. And one frustration over many decades of doing all this work has been the fact that you can say things repeatedly, like, for instance, you shouldn't use neostigmine until at least two twitches of train of four are detectable, and people still give neostigmine when they want to end the operation without monitoring neuromuscular block. So that's an example of the fact that Because clinicians stick to their usual practices year in, year out, they don't step back and think, am I doing this optimally? Even though their clinical practice may be seen to them to be ideal, they're not stepping back and thinking, am I using neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents optimally? And so that's very important to try and impress upon uh, anaesthetists exactly what they should be doing with these drugs. And why do you think, why do you think, despite knowing um, when we should be giving uh, reversal agents, why do you think we don't, why, why do you think we don't do it? Well, I think it, it's an interesting point, this. I think it's interesting to me, as a neuromuscular pharmacologist, that I think most anaesthetists think they know everything about neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents and how to use them optimally, when in fact they don't. Now, that's an attitude to the that set of drugs, which doesn't always apply to things like opioid analgesics. People don't uh, think that they know everything about how drugs induce sleep, but they seem to know, or think they know, how these drugs work at the neuromuscular junction. 
And it's an interesting thing that to me, psychologically, but I think it's partly because they use these drugs and they feel that they know how to use And what's more, even some academics think they know all about neuromuscular blockade and reversal agents when they don't. And I'm trying to highlight the things that they don't fully appreciate in this article. For instance, I think a lot of anaesthetists fail to remember that neostigmine takes at least eight minutes to start having its maximal effect, as well as failing to use it adequately in the sense of waiting till recovery has been established before they give it. So there's certain properties of these drugs, which I think we must think more about uh, if we're going to produce a perfect anaesthetic. And because neostigmine isn't ideal, even though it's used all the time, it's not ideal. And so uh, efforts in research in this area have been to improve upon reversal agents. And that's how Sugamadex came along. And Sugamadex has proved superior to neostigmine in reversing aminosteroidal agents in the sense of it works more quickly. And in addition, you are more likely, if you use the correct dose, to get full recovery from residual neuromuscular block. But even Sugamadex is not perfect. And one of its weaknesses is that it doesn't reverse every neuromuscular blocking agent. And what you would want, ideally, is an antagonist that would reverse any neuromuscular block that you used. So um, these are areas for further research. So I guess in your in the article for the listeners, um, box one in the in the article gives gives a list of what you would ideally like in a perfect reversal agent. I guess we don't have an agent that ticks all of those requirements. Correct. We don't. And that's what that box gets bigger and bigger over time. Uh, For instance, uh, the risk of anaphylaxis would never have been in that box if the paper was just about neostigmine, because neostigmine has a very, very low incidence of producing anaphylaxis. I know of only uh, eight proven cases of anaphylaxis to neostigmine in the literature, as we are seeing more cases of anaphylaxis proven to Sugamadex. It's not common by any means, but it is more common with Sugamadex than neostigmine. So you don't want that. So that's an additional line that's gone into that box in recent years. And this is one of the exciting things about dealing with any group of pharmacological agents that, you know, it's a dynamic situation that changes all the time as techniques change and practice changes. So with Sugamadex, we have definitely got some advantages. And what is interesting, many neuromuscular pharmacologists at the moment, including me, is the fact that if you get full reversal of the train of four ratio in the recovery area, i.e. to greater than 0.9, does that reduce the incidence of post-operative pulmonary complications? Now, we certainly have evidence, as I put in the article, that it reduces immediate post-operative complications if you get full recovery. There's quite a lot of good evidence that Sugamadex improves the recovery in the immediate post-operative period of the train of four ratio. The question is whether that reduces the incidence of post-operative pulmonary complications in the days following surgery. And for a long time, because the research has been retrospective, sometimes underpowered, there doesn't seem to be, in the earlier studies, much difference. 
difference between nasopharynx and gamadex. But now we are getting better data, huge studies like the strongest study just published in anesthesiology in May of 45,000 cases retrospective from a big database that's suggesting that postoperative pulmonary complications are 30% less in the Sugamadec than in the Neostigmine. It's not ideal data because it's retrospective. But nevertheless, I think the data is accruing now to support Sugamadex rather than Neostigmine in reducing postoperative pulmonary complications in the days following surgery. So I'm just going to pick your brain over a couple of things on this. First of all, um, what is the definition of postoperative pulmonary complication? How, how are these papers defining it? Yes, well, that's a very good question because there's been a very great variability in the definition. And I think that's been a problem in finding any uh, significant difference between these two drugs. Um, and in fact, in an editorial in the BJA in March this year, uh, we actually begged researchers to standardise the definition. European Society of Anesthesiology have done several uh, huge studies on postoperative pulmonary complications. They have a standard uh, definition, which is what should be used and is referenced in the editorial we wrote in March in the BJA by uh, Kirsten Bartles and myself, uh, begging researchers to standardise that definition. Because just taking one variable, isn't, it doesn't give you good enough data. So what you need is a fixed list of uh, variables. That we have made progress on in very recent times. So most of the data that's out there that looks at this particular topic, what things have they included? So you mentioned immediate desaturation in the recovery room. What other things are listed there? Need for reintubation, admission unplanned to the intensive care unit, arterial desaturation, hypotension of no, with no other cause. So there are several variables that need to be recorded uh, to determine postoperative pulmonary complications. And you mentioned that the impact is in the immediate time period. Is that within 24 hours of having the surgery? Think of two things. Think of immediate postoperative pulmonary complications in the recovery area, in the POCO, and then look at it in the ward over three or four days. So as I said before, there's long been evidence since Murphy's work in anesthesia and analgesia in 2008 of an improvement in the immediate postoperative pulmonary complications in the recovery room. What we haven't had is the information about the days in the ward after or indeed after the patient's gone home. And that is another factor that needs further work in this area because patients go home so soon, even after major surgery now, you're often not picking up the late postoperative pulmonary complications in the smoker with the chronic bronchitis who's gone home and still coughing days later. If you don't follow these, then you won't you won't get an accurate measurement of your postoperative pulmonary complications. So even two or three days postop is probably not sufficient. We're working on that though. These are areas of current interest. Um, but there's a couple of other studies that you've mentioned. The, the one that you've mentioned now, but also the popular study which you wrote about and the and the big multi-center study that came out in the States. And they, they they essentially had slightly polar results. Do you think, what do you think is the reason for them having such different results, and especially to the one you've just spoken about that's come out this year? That's now called stronger. 
in anesthesiology in May this year. Now, popular, yes, 22,000 European patients, of which the UK was the largest contributor, uh, even though we don't have the largest population. I'm very pleased about that. But nevertheless, it was it was an observational study. It wasn't retrospective. That's a good thing because it was recent data. It was observational. But you can only ask a certain number of questions. But we rapidly realized that, of course, the quality of the data was dependent on the individual practitioner's accuracy in completing the information that we requested from them. And we also realized that a lot of anesthetists were either not monitoring neuromuscular block or not monitoring it adequately. For instance, they were just using qualitative monitoring when the train of four ratio could not be estimated, they were just able to measure the number of twitches of the train of four. That's not good enough. And in addition, what we realized was, of course, we could not assess how accurately an anesthetist was applying the train of four monitoring equipment. And there could be variability between the different types of equipment being used. So in our popular study, we found no significant difference in the incidence of post-operative pulmonary complications between neostigmine and sugamidex, although we did find a difference in the immediate uh, incidence of complications in the recovery area. Sugamidex was better. What we have recently done with that data from 22,000 patients is look to see if the clinician had allowed the train of four ratio to increase to 0.95 rather than 0.9 before extubation, then were the results in relation to post-operative pulmonary complications better? And indeed, they were. And that paper is in January's 2020's BJA. Remember, a lot of people are using acceleromyography now to monitor neuromuscular block. It's in many countries the only clinical neuromuscular monitor available. And acceleromyography, better, much, much better than peripheral nerve stimulators or indeed nothing. But it does tend to overread the train of fall response so that you often get a recovery to over 100%. You've just got to remember that, especially if you don't use the equipment perfectly well. So we now would say that rather than 0.9, you need a train of four ratio if you're using an acceleromyograph of at least 0.95 to before you extubate the patients. And this is an example of the fact that anaesthetists aren't thinking enough about these factors when they use neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents. Now, the strongest study in anesthesiology in May 2020, 45,000 patients that is retrospective from a huge outcome database, but that has shown a significant benefit of sugamidex in relation to post-operative pulmonary complications. And in the stronger, how do they how do they monitor neuromuscular blockade? I have to be careful what I say here because the Americans have been very uh, incalcitrant about monitoring block, but a lot of Americans just use a peripheral nerve stimulator that does not give you a recording of the train of ratio. Uh, until very recent times. It's only in centres where they've got an interest in this topic that that's been used. But nevertheless, they had a huge amount of data and they were able to get train of four ratio recordings in a sufficient number. Because obviously you can't do this work if you've only got qualitative monitoring. 
you can't do it. So the strongest study is the biggest evidence that supports sugamodex in reducing post-operative pulmonary complications. So do you think the, the variations that we've seen between these multiple studies could be related to definition of the actual outcome? It's definitely one factor. The other major factor is, is inadequate monitoring of neuromuscular block, inadequate recording of uh, the monitoring results. What so many statistics tend to do, you see, is they say, oh, here we are, the surgeon's finished, the train of four ratios nearly 0.9, perhaps 0.8. We can finish now. We'll switch off the agents. We'll extubate the patient because in no time it'll be 0.9. That's what they think, but they don't know. It was very interesting in the popular study that there were a large number of clinicians extubating their patients at a train of four ratio over 0.8, but less than 0.9. That was a bit of a surprise, but that has been recorded, that fact, um, in the paper. Uh, and you see, that's just, we're all in a hurry. We've all got another case to do. And cutting corners like this is disadvantageous, but tempting. Why, why do you think we don't monitor proper ratios? Do you think it's, it's the, it's the training or the lack of equipment or? I think it's both those together with the fact that the people who are teaching you aren't taking this matter seriously enough. What I've learned over 40 years in this game is it, that it's much easier to influence trainees than it is to influence middle-aged consultants who are already in, fixed in their practices. When Atricurium first came out, you know, all the trainees were very willing to use Atricurium. I was a new consultant then. Vecuronium came along. They were all ready to try it. It took a long time to convince some of the older consultants to try it because they felt Yet again, they were doing things well enough and patients weren't coming to any harm. So it's very difficult to influence practice. And this is what myself and my uh, research colleagues in this area get so frustrated by. You know? Because although it means paying out for train of four ratio monitors, which might be up to £2,000 each, that's nothing compared with the cost of much of the equipment you use in the operating theatre. So if you want to practice the highest standards uh, of neuromuscular use in, in every aspect, then you should be monitoring block and recovery from it. So imagine, imagine we're doing a list together and you're going to teach me the ideal textbook way of reversing my patient. How would you do it for all those trainees listening out there if you were doing a list with them? Well, of course, it depends which neuromuscular blocking drug you use. If you used a benzyl isoquinolinium, then you've got to use neostigmine. So you should be monitoring train for and using a quantitative monitor until you can detect at least two twitches of the train of four response. And then you should give a dose of neostigmine suitable for that reversal. Now, one interesting aspect of this is and this is very much UK practice and does not apply in the rest of Europe and the US. But what tends to happen with adults in the UK is that they all get 2.5 milligrams of neostigmine. As you should be adjusting your dose of neostigmine according to the degree of recovery from neuromuscular block. So in an adult, 2.5 milligrams is uh, approximately the correct dose if you've only got two twitches of the train of four detectable. But if you've got four twitches of the train of four detectable, then you only need half that dose in an adult. So this is another example of refining your clinical practice. 
And uh, the dose of neostigmine is weight should be weight related, and in, in adults in the UK that's rarely the case. Um, uh, but it also depends on the degree of recovery. There's a very good paper in anaesthesia by Copeman and Eichermann with a table in it telling you what dose of neostigmine you should give according to the recovery of the drain of four ratio. Now, with Sugamadex, of course, one of the great advantages of Sugamadex is that you can reverse profound block in a way that you never could and should never have tried with neostigmine. So Sugamadex dose depends on the, again, on the train of four ratio. So if you've got two twitches of the train of four detectable, then you only need two milligrams per kilo of Sugamadex. But if you've got profound or deep neuromuscular block with no detection of the train of four ratio, but a post-tannic count of, say, one or two, then you need four to eight milligrams per kilo of Sugamadex. And the important thing about Sugamadex is that if you use the right dose of it, according to the train of four ratio monitoring, then you can get full recovery of the train of four ratio within two minutes. You've never, ever been able to do that with neostigmine. And of course, um, it's also been said that if you've got a horrible, can't intubate, can't ventilate situation, you could reverse rocuronium immediately with Sugamadex, 16 grams per kilo. And that is theoretically correct. You can reverse it from uh, soon after its administration of the rocuronium. But the, it, there are practical problems to that in adults because it means opening up several vials of Sugamadex and drawing them all up. It's not the case in a child, of course, but um, there is the impracticality of pulling out four thick vials of Sugamadex and drawing them all up in high. So this is what the practice should be. Staying on the topic of Sugamadex, in your article you mentioned that Sugamadex is used, it seems like it's used much more widely in other countries compared to the UK. Is that, is that correct. correct? Well, I think perhaps it was when Sugamadex first was released in the UK in 2008. It was very expensive compared with glycopyridase and neostigmine. About £60 to reverse moderate block with a train of four count of two compared with one vial of glycopyrrolate neostigmine at less than a pound. So that was, in, in principle, the biggest problem. Now, at the same time it was released in the UK, it was released in Western Europe and in And in France, for instance, you don't have to account for what the cost of the drugs you use in the clinical setting. So the French started to use it very uh, rapidly, as did the Germans for the same reason, and the J Japanese. In Japan now, Sugamadex is used much, much more frequently than neostigmine because rocuronium is the non-depolarizing drug of choice throughout Japan. Um, so where we had more interest in the benzylidoquinolinium, such as in France and uh, the UK, there was perhaps more interest in uh, continuing to use neostigmine. But price was a definite factor, a definite factor. Uh, and it still exists, but um, I think with time, uh, the price has come down slightly, not very much. But um, of course, once the FDA approved the use of Sugamadex in the USA in 2015, then Sugamadex has become extremely popular in the US as well, because it, interestingly enough, and I don't really know why, but glycopyrrolate neostigmine mix is terribly expensive in the US. I just don't know why that should be. 
Uh, obviously, it's marketed by a private company that are charging the earth for it. So the price difference between Sugamadex and Neostigmine in the US is much smaller than it is in the UK. But it's been interesting how price has been a major factor in the UK to its use. Uh, I think more and more people are using Sugamadex now than, than when it first became available. But I must stress that I do not think it's a perfect drug. Not a perfect drug, because partly because of this price issue, and this is interesting in itself, a lot of anaesthetists have tried to use an inadequate dose. For instance, using the two milligrams per kilo when profound block was present, not moderate block. And so because of the expense, they've tried to use lower doses, and that's had an insufficient effect, not surprisingly. So no drug is doctor-proof of any type that you use in your clinical practice, including neuromuscular blocking drugs and reversal agents. But what has become more interesting just in recent years is the increasing reports of allergic type responses to sugamanix, which is which are low, 0.02% of its use in Japan. And of the NAP6 study done by the Royal College of Anesthetists, there was only one report in 64,000 patients of uh, anaphylaxis to Sugamadex. One suspicious, but not proven, and one proven. So it is very uncommon. But uh, there are reports of hypotension too, uh, uh, when the tests have been done for anaphylaxis and proved to be negative. So there is this possible cardiac effect of it as well in logic. So it's not perfect. No drug is. And in, in the article, you mentioned slightly higher rates of anaphylaxis in Japan compared to that study. Do you think that's that's actually a true finding or do you think it's a difference in how anaphylaxis is defined or how data has been collected between the two countries? Yeah, I don't think it's a definition factor. I think it's, it's we don't know is the real answer. But when you use a drug daily, you're bound to see many more reactions mm. to it. So the database, I mean, there will be limitations. And we come back again to this problem with retrospective databases and of course, when you're looking for things like that, you're just trawling anaesthetic records. So that's very low quality data. So that's probably a problem. That's probably a problem. Rather than when you have a real case of anaphylaxis, it's such a nightmare to you, you never forget it. And so you record every detail. So there's probably a recording problem, but still it's a tenfold difference, which is a worry. Now, the Japanese have suggested that it might be due to sensitization to the drug, having had it several times. But we've no proof of that yet. But that might be the case. In your in the, in the paper, you talked about using Sagamidex, um in the setting of laparoscopic surgery where deep, profound neuromuscular blockade was used. There's a group in Leiden in Holland who've done a lot of work on this, produced several papers. But in this era of robotic laparoscopic procedure, when the patient is in a peculiar position and they're needing often quite high, to be hyperventilated, then um, it does help, it was thought, if profound neuromuscular block with no train of thought being detectable and only a post-tetanic count being recorded would help the surgeon. And so the Leiden group in particular, but many other groups as well, have looked at different surgical procedures and given infusions of rocuronium 
to produce profound block, which of course requires reversal with sugamadets. And the Leiden group suggested that there were fewer post-operative complications and mainly fewer side effects in the sense of, you know, the pain, the referred pain to the shoulder tip can be very difficult to treat. It doesn't respond to conventional analgesics. And so that's been very interesting work. And it's been used in bariatric surgery as well as laparoscopic prostatectomies and uh, laparoscopic nephrectomies. It's being questioned. Not everybody uh, approves of the practice, but um, it is a very well-established technique. And do you think the evidence is strong enough for us to use it in our clinical practice? Well, certainly, I haven't done bariatric work. I certainly think it would be tempting then. But uh, I certainly think it's a useful technique in robotic prostatectomy, for instance. So where, where do you think the future is going with, new, with, with, this, with this area of work, with the area of research that you're doing? Um, I mean, there are new developments on the horizon, of course. One is the Savaresis group in the US have looked at chlorofumarates, which are a type of benzyl isoquinoline, which break down in the plasma by the, uh, by the amino acid cysteine, which of course occurs endogenously in the plasma. And they have developed these drugs in a, in a long lasting attempt to get uh, as rapid an onset as succinylcholine and a shorter duration of action as succinylcholine. Because none of the non-depolarizing drugs you have at the moment available to you certainly have a shorter duration of action as succinylcholine. And their onset of effect, even with a large dose of rocuronium, 0.9 milligrams per kilo, you can achieve almost as good a conditions as succinylcholine. But remember, there's a much greater variability of effect with rocuronium than succinylcholine. So we are near to the rapid onset of succinylcholine, but not quite there. So that's been one attempt of the chlorofumarates and uh, whether cysteine should be provided commercially in suitable doses to reverse these drugs in a hurry. And there are two of them being developed for clinical use, one of which has a profile similar to succinylcholine and the other an onset similar to rocuronium, but a duration of action more like atricurine. Unfortunately, this wretched pandemic has, of course, slowed down the introduction of phase three trials in some of these drugs, which were just raring to go before all elective work stopped. So that's an interesting development. But when you look at table one of the review, it doesn't fulfill all the uh, uh, characteristics of an ideal reversal agent. Cysteine uh, would have to be developed commercially, but it would reverse these chlorofumarates, so it wouldn't reverse every non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking drug. And then the calabadians have been developed uh, again in the US, in Boston, and these are similar to Sugamadex in the sense that they are encapsulating it. And the the calabadian tools are even more efficacious than Sugamadex at reversing rocuronium. But what is important is that they also reverse the benzyl isoquinolinians. So that would be coming to a completely different ballgame. But as far as I know, they're not yet ready for phase three trials. And as you said, the more the more work that's done in this area, that 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 list in box one will probably continue to grow. That's the great fun of pharmacology, of course. It applies to all drugs, not just these 
that uh, you find out things about a drug which all the face trials in the world don't answer. So that's what I enjoy about it, really, one of the many things I enjoy about it. If you were to leave a, a take-home message for our listeners, um, key points to bear in mind that could really make a difference to their clinical work. Well, uh, undoubtedly, the main message is that you must monitor the train of four ratio using a quantitative monitor to get ideal full recovery from neuromuscular block at the end of surgery and hence reduce both the incidence of immediate post-operative pulmonary complications and probably the incidence of post-operative pulmonary complications in the days following surgery. And watch this space. More to come. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you so much, Professor Hunter. That was an absolutely fantastic podcast. Um, Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. I wish you well.